Welcome back to another episode of the Property Experience Podcast with Anna Porter and Nick Barlow. This podcast will take you behind the curtain of the property market nationwide. Hello and welcome back to the Property Experience Podcast. I'm Anna Porter and this is... I'm Nick Barlow. Hi, Anna. Hi. How are you? I am fabulous today. Fabulous. So today we want to talk about doing subdivisions and small developments. Now, I know we've covered developments from a feasibility point of view. But I thought so we could look at it from a capacity and capability point of view. So uh, Nick uh, works with a lot of big organisations like bowling clubs, golf clubs, not-for-profits. Um, uh, McDonald's is one of your biggest clients um, and helps them look at major projects. So, you know, big projects, 100, 200 units and things like that. Seniors living, residential through to hotel, motel. And when you're dealing with a board, of, say a bowling club, often there's a lot of conversation around capacity is it's do they want to be a developer do they have the capacity financially expertise wise appetite for risk when they're doing these big projects and often bring in a joint venture partner to help them navigate that but when we're talking mum and dad investors you know families that maybe you know haven't done a big or, or a small project before um first time develop you know first-time investors turn developers, um, or even people that have got a little bit of experience in the property game. What sort of people, actually we'll come to the what sort of people next, what sort of things do you need to consider embarking on any sort of development project from a capacity and um, capability and risk point of view? Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot a lot in there, Anna. Um, I think at the end of the, like, at the start of the, at the start of the journey, um, you know, people might have a, a, a property where it's got development potential underlying. They've bought the property um, with the intention to live in the house, and the house over time, you know, needs repairs and maintenance and things like that. Um, it might get to the end of its usable life, and rebuilding is, you know, the, the way forward for it. Um, but in time, over time, council requirements change and things like that, and. So as a result, a lot of properties have this underlying development potential. So, um, you know, development can be sought out um, by, you know, mum and dad investors or people wanting to get into property development, or, or it might just sort of become something that they're, they're doing because it, it's their, their, it finds them, their home. Yeah, correct. it finds them, they don't yeah. find it. Yep. So when they're thinking about it, they've got to think about things like finance. Can they actually yep. get enough money? Because a, a development construction loan is very different to the normal loans most people get, isn't it? Yeah, well, like in speaking to, to people who um, maybe haven't had exposure to that previously, um, one thing I'd always encourage you is, is to, to really do your homework on the cost because obviously you, you've got to know what capacity you've got. So obviously if, you, if you're not um, doing it out of your own funds and you're borrowing money from a bank, you don't you obviously don't want to get halfway through a project and, and run out of run out of money. Um, so you've got to make sure that you have your costs because that, no matter um, what project it is, there's always some contingency that's required. Um, you know, a, a typical um, developer um, on a project might might allow for, for 10 or even 15% contingency. Um, what we've seen in the last 12, 18 months is a really sharp rise in cost of materials and a shortage in labour and therefore a rise in the cost of labour as well. So they, they're really fresh and recent examples of how those costs can increase over a short period of time, but a contingency 
project contingency is required on and on any project anyway. And a fixed price contract at the moment may not really be a fixed price contract. If you're going to send your builder broke because they can't afford those that changing environment, well then there's really no point in holding them to the contract because they won't exist. So you may be going back to the negotiation table mid-contract at the moment just because the costs have gone up so much on the builder that they couldn't anticipate that. Yep. So you know, you need that contingency, even though we often hear people say, but my, my contract's fixed. Well, it's fixed except for variations when things go wrong. Yep. You know, there's challenges with the site and that, that you didn't know when they didn't know, or there's environmental challenges or planning challenges that no one could foresee, or just your cost of material went up so much that your builder just can't carry it, you know? So there are a lot of renegotiations happening from what I'm seeing. Um, so there's gotta be financial capacity. In terms of um, the type of person doing this, so I mean, if you're a builder, a chippy, a tradie of some sort, would you maybe consider that they might be a bit better equipped than say someone that's never picked up a hammer in their life? Like who should be thinking about actually taking on a little project? And you know, could someone like that, that, that maybe is an accountant or a, you know, some sort of, you know, um, non-trade based job, some sort of consultant or professional, could they do some of it, like maybe get a DA and flip it or so? Like where, where does that begin and end with capacity and capability? Where does it start to get really hard or really risky or really challenging? Well, I mean, obviously anyone can do it, you know, um, and you've got to start somewhere. So, it, but with anything that involves, you know, large sums of money, um, it, obviously it's it's buy beware, you, you know, you, you're not going to go and invest, you know, 100,000, 500,000, a million dollars in shares without doing your research. So it's all about doing your research, getting quotes, um, getting the finance up front and in order and make sure, making sure you've got the capacity and, and having a buffer. Obviously, people in the trade or, or um, uh, builders themselves, that, that they have the advantage of being able to, not only having the experience of knowing that they, they themselves will be the builder, but also that they'll be able to, they'll have that background knowledge of what it costs, um, and plus they don't have to charge themselves. Um, so they can do that as a side project whilst building someone else's house and work them in conjunction with one another and things like that and save on, like they're working for themselves so they're yeah. not charging themselves. So mums and dads, people like you and me even are gonna pay retail rates effectively. Yep. We're gonna yep. pay the builder a exactly. retail rate whereas they get probably a bit of a wholesale rate because they're part of the process. Yep. Um, okay, so that's interesting. So, and in, in that that can be ten percent of your cost, or typically is ten, even fifteen percent with some projects. So, you know, that can make a big difference when you're talking two, three million dollars out. Um, that can sometimes be the difference between making a project viable and not viable as well. In my experience, that's right. Yeah, when when um, a bank's assessing it, they will you know they will look for a certain yield or return um, on the project and anyone reasonably you know realistically looking at going to embark on a project like this you know obviously you, you want to make some money for your effort at the end of the day you know so that that money that you're um, projecting to make is is your reward for the risk you're, you're undertaking so whilst someone who has a house and it's got some development potential uh, they might be doing it just for a property to own at the end of the day and then sell off the other one, rent it out, things like that. Obviously, you still don't want to be losing money. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, if you're, you're looking at the start of the project at not making any money, it doesn't take much for that to become a negative. Yeah. Um, we spoke about variations earlier. When you get a building contract, it will exclude things like hitting rock and excavation. 
you know, yeah. and and so if you've got to everything's a rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you've got if you're going to excavate for for a pool or for some landscaping or, or for for parking purposes, um, that can get very expensive very quickly. Yeah. Um, the other thing is is what's included and excluded from the building contract. So exclusions, you know, that's obviously really important all the soft furnishings, they, they all add up. We see that all the time as valuers. So yep. you and I get contracts as valuers and the bank and say, you know, put a price on what this will be worth. Here's your build cost and your contract. Here's your land. And once it's a completed project to this specification, these plans, what's your value? And cost doesn't always equal value as we've learned, but you go through the contract, there could easily be $100,000 worth of things not included, yep. like landscaping, fencing, paving, um, floor coverings, window treatments, blinds, light fittings, the whole lot. So yeah. that, that adds up real quick and people don't always realise that for, first and foremost. But also then the cost equals value thing. So just because you're going to go build, say you build a duplex, you've got your land, you've got your duplex and you might decide that you're going to put these $1.5 million build duplexes on, which is not necessarily that hard to get to these days. Mm. You've got $3 million out in build cost. So now you're at $4 million invested into this project and that doesn't necessarily mean you're definitely going to get two, two and a half mil each on it, the end sale, does it? it? You know, you can overcapitalize really easily yep. or undercapitalize as well. So you've really got to not only have the expertise around the DA, get the DA, know how to actually do that or get the right people, then how to build it and cost it up and the capacity to get the finance. You kind of got to know your market too, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to know, you've got to do your research and know what the end product is going to be worth. And, and what the market wants in that area. So, you know, obviously, yes, you can you can build something to your own specs and, and that that's absolutely fine. You can choose to what have whatever you want in your own house, but if you're looking to sell one or both of the product or whatever it might be, um, you want the market to be looking for the inclusions that you've bothered to put in and, and gone to the expense of putting in because um, otherwise you're not gonna get a return on that outlay. Yeah. Um, one of the, the last questions I have for you is around um, when you're looking at doing a, a, a duplex or a smaller development, a small subdivision or something like that, you know, you might be turning your one lot into two or three or four even. Um, let's say you're someone that doesn't have the expertise you, or you, you're a trading, you know enough, but maybe, you know, you haven't done a project end to end. Um, is there value in getting a DA and flipping it just with a DA? Like I, I've done that before. I've looked at my one of my properties that had potential to go from um, where a single house could turn it into four. Um, I couldn't get the best buying price on building it. I'm not a builder, yep. right? I know the industry, I know the sector, but I'm not a builder. So we got the DA and flipped it and got the uplift in the yep. DA. Is, is there value in doing that? Could people consider that if they're not in the building game? Yeah, definitely. Like um, having a block with that um, that upside is is and depends on this the real estate market is always dependent on timing mm. so you know when you bought it and what you paid uh the, the time frame that you, you hold it for and what you know and what the market's doing at the time so you might set out intending to do the project from the start to the finish but you might realize at a point in time you go well the environment's changing i've got my da it's probably worth X. I could go and take on the build myself or, or get a builder to do it and outlay a further, you know, one, two, three million dollars. Or I could sell it now with no risk and probably not the whole reward, mm. but it's all risk versus reward. Some. And so if some, you might say, well, if I can get more than half of the, the profit by selling the block nice and clean yeah. and done, uh, and move on to the next project. Yeah, you know? and once you're your DA, you're appealing to a broader market because 
it's a known factor. But if you can get a DA that's a little bit pushing the envelope, or a little bit more challenging to get, yep. that's where you're gonna add that extra value, isn't it? Well, if you've got that time up your sleeve to wait for a DA and, and get the most out of it, and you're, in the meantime, living in the house that's on the block, say, you're under no time pressure. And so what, you know, a great thing that developers want is, or builders want is DA approved because it's a project that, that they can get stuck into straight away. Yeah, great. Thanks, Nick. That's been really, really informative. Really appreciate your time. No worries at all. Today, we have Craig Miller from Vision Surveys Consulting talking to us more about this subdivision duplex play for investors and builders, um, who is an absolute specialist in this field. So thank you for joining us, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Anna, for uh, having me along. So Craig, my understanding is you um, are predominantly in the Perth market. Now we've seen a lot of changes to town planning and policies around that, that has actually unlocked a lot more development potential um, around a lot of the suburban areas. Walk us through what you're seeing there and, and how people can really leverage that. Um, look, we've, uh, we, we have been in the Perth market for a long time. Our, our company's uh, been established since 2004 and we focus on uh, a lot of subdivision and development um, infill uh, style developments now uh, we, we provide a range of services to uh, to assist our clients that's uh, in, in the space of, of planning and surveying project management conveyancing really everything that's needed to assist uh, assist our clients to, to take projects from um, starting point to, uh, of property identification all the way through to the works and the completions of the of the new titles uh, for, for any project so certainly um, is an interesting space to be working in and there's always uh, always things that are, are coming up and, and changing and uh, certainly has been um, a dynamic space within even just the last 10 years uh, if we go back we look at uh, the state policy di directions 2031 and beyond. Um, that, that really was established back in 2010 to, to look at the, the growth of the Perth and Perth population moving towards uh, around 2.2 million in, in 2031. Uh, interesting enough, we're, we're already uh, at a population of, of 2.1 million um, and we've still got a few years to go. So uh, that that um, seems to be a little bit of an underestimation um, and we'll, we'll certainly be bigger by the, Perth will certainly be a bigger city by the time we get to 2031. Um, now that, that, that policy really identified um, shortfalls in, in Perth around uh, where, where additional um, residents can be provided to, to accommodate for that population growth. Um, now that's a, around the, not just the peripheries of Perth and the expansion of Perth north and south and to the east as well. Um, but it was really highlighted the, the need to um, utilise the existing suburbs and provide infill um, development such as duplexes and, and triplexes on um, existing larger lots. Uh, and they, interesting enough, out of that report, um, it was it was targeted that uh, almost fifty percent of the the new dwellings that uh, they they had proposed were to come from infill infill um, subdivisions, and that was not not just a, a blanket across the board approach, but um, looking at 
looking at a, a smarter planning focus on on areas that um, can handle density increases uh, with such things as um, amenities as, as shopping centres and, and public transport. So really trying to uh, accommodate uh, a more functional infill in into into Perth. So. On the back of the um, on the back of the directions uh, twenty thirty one, uh, the the state government uh, engaged with all the local councils to to review and update their town planning schemes, um, to really put a, a planning framework in place to uh, achieve the the infill quotas that uh, needed to needed to be um, ticked off, and so. At, uh, at that stage, some of those town planning schemes ha hadn't been reviewed for over 15 years. Uh, so you can imagine that, that there was some really big changes um, within some of the council areas that, uh, that were needed. Uh, in conjunction with that, uh, the residential design codes, which is, which is a, a main um, building policy and, and, direct, and uh, specification for, for building and development in, in WA, was also reviewed to uh, allow such things as smaller apartment complexes, uh, which was at that stage identified as a, a good way to uh, bring numbers of residents into the market uh, quickly and and help achieve some of those infill numbers. Uh, it was certainly something that was taken up um, in large, uh, with seeing a large number of projects come through it around 2013, 2014 in, in Perth. Um, and there was lots of uh, that style of development around the, the metro area um, including some areas that probably didn't have the, the suitable, suitable amenities um, that were needed to, to a sport, uh, support that sort of densification. So ultimately what we did see is um, a wind back on the uh, apartment style developments. Um, not to say that they, they're still not in the strategy to uh, provide uh, further accommodation and residence to, to Perth but um, they've uh, been wound back on, on where those sorts of developments can actually occur. And so the more, the more recent focus has been on uh, what we call the, the missing middle, really the duplex and triplex and, and terrace style housing. So we've, we've seen a lot of um, ongoing reviews, uh, particularly regarding the residential design code policy. Uh, that that um, has really um, been focused on a, uh, a review to provide a balance between the quality uh, build outcomes for densified areas, but while also trying to maintain livable and green space um, for established suburbs. So in, in addition to this, there's soon to be released um, a policy called uh, the Medium Density Code. Uh, we're expecting that out, uh, if not the end of this year, the, the start or potentially the start of, of 2023. Um, that, that is a policy that is to designed to uh, specifically focus on um, the duplex and triplex infill in Perth and uh, encouraging, encouraging and promoting that sort of development uh, for the population of Perth as, as it grows. Uh, currently, our, our Perth market situation is that there is very limited properties available. 
Uh, we we only currently have um, 8,000 properties on the market for sale just the other day. And our rental, the rental vacancies, uh, it's down to a, a really low number, around about 1,700 properties uh, available. So put that in perspective, um, only five years ago in, in 2017, there was 18,000 properties on the market and around 13,000 rental vacancies. So uh, we, we've gone from around 30,000 30, properties there down to about uh, 10,000. Perth um, population is is continuing to grow. We're we're seeing um, that last year Perth had uh, one of the the strongest population growths at about one point one percent. That was even with our borders closed. Um, so I'm, I'm still trying to work out how that uh, how that occurred. Um, but we we do uh, expect that that uh, growth will population growth will continue and. Uh, WA Treasury is predicting population growth over the next couple of years of between 1.2% and 1.5% annually. So we see that that, that pressure is uh, and demand for properties is, is still going to be there. Um, so considering all the, all those numbers, I, I would expect there to be strong demand for new properties, especially in established suburbs of Perth. Uh, that are close to amenities, close to transport. Uh, so any, any properties that has the potential to be developed or subdivided as a duplex or a triplex, uh, is certainly gonna have a, a lot of upside to it in, in the Perth market. So if you're living in the Perth area and you have a site that's a bit oversized or underutilized, can you actually unlock that as a development site? Where would you start? Who would you talk to? What, what's the process involved? So not not all properties in the Perth metro area have the potential for development. The councils have generally adopted policies that will allow infill development around shopping centres, train line and other key infrastructure. Um, we, we see such projects as Metronet um, rolling out in, in Perth at the moment. So uh, there has been a lot of changes to, to zoning around uh, around those new train stations and train lines that are coming through. Um, so so generally the the first first port of call would be uh, looking to the to the local council and would refer to their town planning scheme to identify. A particular lot and to see if it's zoned in such a way that would allow for development as as a, a duplex or a, a triplex uh, now if that if that site does has does have potential for development then a subdivision to create the land titles or development to build new residents um, there two or three on the on the site generally follows uh, a four-step process uh, in WA. Uh, the, the, the initial step is to obtain planning approvals. Now, this uh, can be done uh, if it's land titles through the WA Planning Commission. Uh, alternatively, if it's to be a build product, uh, build project, then that's through the local council process. Uh, e either, either way, the, the planning process there takes three to four months. Um, and once once approved, then that uh, planning approval outlines all the all the works that need to, to be achieved on site before the uh, final uh, titles can be created. 
So that then moves into the into the second step, which is the executing all the all the works on site. Now, if that if that's land, that may just be uh, requirements to demolish and clear the site, provide all the appropriate earthworks, um, full servicing of the lots, so uh, that you can obtain the titles, and then you may or may not um, be building uh, as part of that process as as well. Um, once all those works are completed, then there's a, the third step is a certification uh, and for compliance. So uh, the the works that have been completed on site would be inspected by all the, 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 the local uh, government and also the various uh, service agencies that uh, uh, that are involved, and once they've once they've provided their certification, uh, we can finally move to the to the last stage, which is the registration of new titles uh, at uh, at Landgate, which is the the, the governing body here that uh, looks after the looks after the titles. So that involves um, the survey of the land, the registration of those plans, and registration of the the title documentation. Uh, with with Landgate. Uh, now to, to undertake that process, so you, you certainly need a, a team of professionals such as uh, such as planners, surveyors, uh, project managers, conveyances. Um, at uh, at Vision Surveys Consulting, we we certainly provide all those experts under under one roof, just to make it as easy as possible to assist our clients to uh, to get from that that starting process of identifying a, a good uh, property and making sure that it's feasible to develop that site um, all the way through the, the work steps to and certification and the creation of the, the new titles. So Craig, we've got a lot of clients that um, are looking to invest in the Perth market. If they're looking for a property that has development potential, what should they be looking for? How will they know whether they can do a duplex or subdivide? Are there some things they should look at, particularly with the site itself, to make that a viable project? And then where can they go to check this information from, say, a planning perspective or a building perspective before they sign that contract on the dotted line? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, is there, there is a lot to consider when identifying a property that is going to deliver on your, your goals for development. As, as we touched on earlier, there, there needs to, initially we need to be looking in areas that have the appropriate zoning to, to allow for development. When investigating the potential for any property, um, we, we contact the, the council and use the, the council um, databases to look at the specifics of the, of the a lot to, to find out what the allocation of the zoning is. Now, now these zonings, they relate back to um, the residential design policy for, for WA, which has the specifications of what we call the R codes. So when you're looking at any, any council um, town planning scheme or, or zoning, it, you'll see it always relates back to an R code. So that's uh, where, the, where that uh, reference comes from. So in general, uh, the higher the R code rating for a property, the, the greater the density can be achieved. So for example, if we have a property that's in an in a area that has an R25 zoning, then it, the lot size needs to be a minimum of 700 square metres to be considered for duplex development. Whereas a 
property that has an R60 zoning would have uh, would would only require uh, an area of 300 square meters to be considered the duplex development. Uh, so once once we've identified that uh, there there is that potential for uh, infill development, and uh, we work out if is that a duplex, a, a triplex, or a sometimes quad sites for uh, the infill infill properties, uh, then we may look at such things as the the existing house on the lot. Is it positioned in such a way that we can retain it for subdivision purpose? Uh, in some cases, we may only need to make some minor variations to that house to, to retain it on site. Uh, alternatively, you may choose to demolish the existing dwelling and create two or, or three new uh, land titles or builds onto, onto that property. Other important items to investigate are around um, services and soil types. So we always consult with our water corporation in regarding uh, the, the water and sewerage mains, looking at where these services are, are located in relation to the, to the property. Are they in such a position that if we do subdivide it uh, in a certain configuration, will that allow for the service, appropriate servicing of the, of the new lots or would there be additional plumbing works that would be required? Um, power is a, another consideration as well. Um, is, is the property in an area that's on overhead power or underground power? Um, one of the requirements these days is that uh, every, every subdivision that does uh, does go through does is required to upgrade to, to underground power. Um, soil, soil types um, can have a, a big influence on the, the scope of the earthworks. Uh, now, we have a, a range of range of soils throughout Perth. Uh, there's a lot of sandy areas, but there is some, some suburbs that do have clay soils. And uh, if, if we're subdividing and developing in those areas, then we, we need to take into consideration soil remediation works that may be required, um, additional drainage infrastructure that may need to be installed as part of the part of the subdivision process as well. Uh, the topography of the land is, is something that is important to have a look at. Uh, ideally, we, we want to be creating lots that are as flat and uh, build friendly as possible. So there may be such things as retaining walls that need to be incorporated into the, into the subdivision. Um, Bushfire prone areas uh, as well um, is something to look at if, the, if you're looking at a property that is near um, bushland sites. Um, if, if that is the case, then there is the potential there uh, for the, the property to have a, um, a bushfire attack level rating on the site which uh, it doesn't inhibit the, the subdivision of the and development of the property, uh, but what it, what it does do is require a higher standard of build to, to be met to, to address any potential, potential fire threats. Um, 
there's also other things like tree retention policies, um, infrastructure contributions that varies per council. Uh, even some, some councils do have um, their own additional building design policies on top of the, the standard state residential design codes. Uh, so we just got to make sure that uh, we're looking at uh, all those things from the, the state level right down to the, the council level uh, to, to ensure that you can achieve what you want to do on the, on the property. Uh, so to, to answer all these questions, when, when we're looking at a, a property, um, I'll always recommend to any of our clients uh, to engage a professional like myself to, to carry out a, a feasibility report on the site. Um, now this can be done by uh, carrying it out prior to putting in an offer on the property or, or quite often we have our clients uh, include a, a due diligence clause in their, in their contracts. So to give us some time to, to have a look at um, look, look at the site and, and provide that feedback to uh, make sure it is a, a, a site that's going to uh, tick all the boxes for them. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.